Thanks, Alex and Jackson. Uh, friends, my name's Graham. if you don't know me, um, if you're visiting with us today. Um, well, and yes, congratulations to South Africa. I didn't expect that at all. Didn't expect it, did you guys? No one did. No one did, no. Couldn't believe it, how badly English, the, English people, the English team played. I was sitting there flabbergasted. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about rugby, but if you want to have a meeting after church, we were happy to do that. Um, okay, so we're continuing our series in uh, the Lord's Prayer, and we're up to our third little phrase where, uh, where your kingdom come is the phrase we're looking at today. And don't forget, you can, um, no, no, Michelle said you can catch up on sermons you've missed from the weekend away. They were really great. I really encourage you to go and um, hear them, but also for this series too. And if you're someone who's got an iPhone, you can get them on our little podcast as well. So that helps too. Okay, so we're praying for a kingdom. How does that sit with you? A kingdom? Hmm. I, you know, we're not really people who go for kingdoms. You know, we, we, we tend to replace them with parliamentary democracies whenever we get the chance. That's what we tend to do. I guess the word kingdom reminds us of either a medieval tyranny or, say, um, I don't know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or the kingdom of Brunei or Amman. And, you know, they're not really pleasant pictures, are they? So when Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come, we need to be reminded that God's kingdom is like no other kingdom. God's kingdom is, a, this is what one author said, a paradise home that makes the Caribbean look like war-torn Stalingrad. <laughs> That's a pretty cool sentence, isn't it? Um, so today, we're gonna, we need to grasp the biblical picture of the kingdom of God. And uh, when we do that, well, I reckon we'll be begging our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Why don't we pray? And just before we do that, there's an outline, which is a, which is a uh, you can, double-sided A5 little sheet. Now, don't be afraid by that. Um, we do move through fairly swiftly. But I do encourage you to write a few things down. Um, if you want to have your Bible open... Uh, it's actually, most of it's going to be up on the screen. So today's a day probably just to, to look up on the screen and follow there because um, we're jumping around quite a lot. Okay, now we, we pray and we get stuck into this little phrase. Father, thank you for your word to us. Uh, thank you, God, that you're a God who speaks and you're a God who loves us and sent your only son to die for us. Lord, we, um, we want to know you more as king and what that means. So we pray you'd help us to do that. Help us understand this little phrase that Jesus taught his disciples. Amen. The king is dead. Long live the king. So this is the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald when Queen Elizabeth uh, II was um, uh, coronated. Or I think it was when, when the uh, king, what was the king before him? He died. And so she was next on the throne. It was 1952, a long time ago. Um, the king is dead, long live the king. It's one thing that, a phrase that's said uh, at coronations of new kings and queens across the globe, even today. But if we think about that phrase for a minute and how it's said across coronations and new kings and queens across the world, it should point us to something. And that is that human kings or queens, well, they come and go, don't they? They come and go. But friends, when we pray to God the Father... We pray to the king of kings who has always been the king. 
So Psalm 47 verse 2 says, For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. God, the Apostle Paul writes, is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who rules everything according to his plans. Psalm 33 verse 11, whose plans stand firm forever, who works out everything in conformity with, his, with the purpose of his will, from Ephesians 1. So the king, this God, directs and directs nature and history in every detail, the Bible says. He upholds and directs the universe. Every decision we make, every choice is enabled by the king and woven into the fabric of his plans. This is the king that we pray to when we say, your kingdom come. Problem is though, we humans, we humans like to run life without this king, without God. It's a great story uh, early in the year, not long ago, in June. Uh, a story of a little UK town called Loxwood. Now you probably haven't, has anyone heard of Lox, Loxwood? No. It's about, it's apparently 1,480 people, Loxwood, uh, Loxwood, we keep on getting it wrong. Loxwood, due to the current political crisis in the UK, Brexit and all that shenanigans that's going on, Loxwood have declared independence from the UK. There you go. They've declared independence. Loxwood reportedly says that uh, it wants to be free of UK interference due to the current political turmoil. The so-called, wait for it, and you'll meet her here, the Queen of Loxwood, there she is, Catherine Adelina I, there she is, that, that photo was taken in June, just so you know, she has said the village would be returning to the laws of the 15th century. In a video address, and you can watch it online, Queen Adelina said, Good people of the realm, I am hereby declaring independence from the United Kingdom. The Kingdom of Loxwood would henceforth become its own independent state. Now, there's a few steps remaining, I believe. Uh, they're yet to be recognised by other states, and they're hoping to be, uh, will join the United Nations. Good luck to them. In fact, on June the 1st, they actually put up signs. Signs were placed on the kingdom's boundaries to remind the villagers that 15th, century's law, 15th century laws will now be enforced. How do you think it's going to go? <laughs> Pretty badly, I reckon. You know what? It's not the first time those crazy English villagers have done this. Back in the year 2000, there was a village called Ash, Ashurst, and they did the same thing. They declared independence but unfortunately, it was, uh, well, it was doomed. Uh, they had a bit of, their downfall came with visa complications. Um, apparently, the milkman and the postie couldn't get through because they hadn't got a visa. <laughs> big, big issues, you know. Friends, um, our rebellion against God is equally doomed, but it has far more serious consequences. See, if we spend our lives rebelling against our king, Seeking independence against God and his gospel, we're actually choosing an eternity without him. And Jesus calls that hell. And that is no laughing matter. God is our king, whether we like it or not. He's the king of the universe. 
Now, the Bible tells us that God the Father has always intended to exercise his kingship through God the Son. Back in the year 740 BC, when King Uzziah died, Isaiah the prophet, who was alive at that point, 8th century BC, was given this overwhelming vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, Isaiah 6 says, the King, the Lord Almighty, the ruling in absolute power. Now jump ahead about 800 years or so, and this king is identified by John, the Apostle John, who wrote in reference to Isaiah 6, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. John 12. Now, God the Father wanted especially to glorify his son by giving him a kingdom of redeemed, rescued people enjoying his amazing grace. So the son went to the cross. What did he do that for? He went to the cross to ransom us, to die for our sin by giving, uh, by, die for our sin, our rebellion against our king, our, our Lockswood attitude. That's what sin is, isn't it? And he ransomed us, paid the price for our sin and death to bring us into his kingdom. And then the father raised and enthroned his son in triumph as king forever. The Father is now bringing all things in heaven and earth together under Christ's rule. The church today demonstrates that. We meet together under Christ's rule. Uh, You can read Colossians 1 or Ephesians 1, a bit more about that if you want to. But one day the Father will send Jesus back to finally subdue his enemies, gather his people, renew his creation and establish his glorious kingdom forever under his father's rule. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray for that. That's what we pray for. Now, we're going to do the next few minutes. You can see in your notes here, it's point two in your notes, and it's quite a long point, lots of sub points. Um, We're going to to get a taste of this extraordinary kingdom as it develops in the Bible. Okay, Uh, I've caught on your notes there a walk through the scriptures. I'm going to be honest with you, it's not a walk, it's a sprint. We're going to go for it as fast as we can. Okay, We're going to do a walk through the scriptures of how the kingdom of God fits in. Now where should we start? Well of course we should start in the beginning, shouldn't we? So in the beginning God created a garden. Now, what I've got, I've, I've, I've just paused for a moment. I've got a little diagram there. I think you can see that one pretty well, but it doesn't have as much information as this one. But I'm hoping, I'm thinking you probably can't see this. Can you see that at the back? No? All right. I can give you a copy of that, but that's a good one in terms of all the different, you know, creation, Abraham, Moses, Judges. I'm going to mention these in the next few minutes, okay? You've got some of the kings of the, of the, the north, and, sorry, the south and the north, and, uh, and so on. So I'm going to go back to this one, which you can see, but it doesn't have much information. Okay, so if that helps, look at it. Otherwise, just listen up. So seven or eight minutes, we're going to go for it. All right, see how the kingdom of God fits through the whole story of the scriptures. Okay, strap yourselves in. In the beginning, God created a garden. So this was a garden kingdom with God as king. Adam and Eve enjoying God's presence. But our ancestors rebelled. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, just as we would have done too, by the way. 
The consequences of their, to their proud disobedience was they were kicked out of the garden, expulsion from the garden, to live outside of God's kingdom. This human wickedness and its spread is described in Genesis 1 to 11. And it really culminates, I think, in, chapters, in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? They took the king, the crown, off God and they put it on themselves and said, I'm going to rule my life my own way. I'm going to make a name for myself. And so I'm going to build this huge tower and make a name for myself rather than make a name for God. And that's where it finishes up. They push God out of the picture. Genesis 1 to 11, you see, reveals that we need a saviour. And so when we pray your kingdom come... Well, we're actually asking to live once more in God's paradise kingdom. That's what we're praying. We're longing for that. We'll get back to that later. In Genesis 12, and don't, don't worry, I'm not going to go through chapter by chapter. We'll be here like for the next two weeks. In Genesis 12, it's a key chapter. In God's amazing generosity, God promised Abraham a land, a people and a blessing through which he would bless the nations. Paul later described this promise of the kingdom of God as the gospel. Genesis then goes on to record how Abraham's family was preserved through times of infertility, through sin, through famine, and then slavery in Egypt. Exodus tells us how this nation was redeemed or rescued from slavery by God's Passover sacrifice and the rescue through the Red Sea, the the, the waters. God blessed them with his law, Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. Now that I've saved you, he said... Live like this. Come to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus describes the sacrificial system to enable them uh, to be purified for life in fellowship with God. Numbers, it's like a big census, Numbers is. Uh, Numbers records God leading the people into the promised land, preparing them, and sometimes it's through judgment. And and it really serves, as we read Numbers, it serves as a warning for us on our journey as Christians uh, to our inheritance in heaven. Deuteronomy uh, explains how Moses prepared the people to enter the kingdom and live under God's rule in Canaan. And just we'll jump ahead for a minute. We jump ahead to the New Testament. When we read the New Testament, these first five books uh, of, um, of the Bible are used time and again to explain how Christians are ransomed uh, from captivity of sin into God's kingdom. We see it picked up all the time. So, friends, you see, at a time when our governments pass, our governments passes, uh, they pass laws that allow for the killing of human life and they pass laws that support sexual immorality, we pray your kingdom come to express our longing to live under the loving and righteous laws of God as lived and taught by Jesus in the promised land of heaven. That's what we pray. We pray for a longing to live under God's law. All right, how about these, these, these kings? So we're looking at the third little point down there. And on, the, on our diagram, uh, we're sort of, well, we're really about there. Okay, that's where we are. All right. As we walk or sprint through the scriptures, uh, the history of Israel from Joshua through to 2 Chronicles describes various leaders who were appointed over God's kingdom. Combining them together, their best features point out a hu- point, uh, sorry, paint a hugely impressive and attractive picture of a king repeatedly promised by God. So there was Joshua. Joshua means God saves. Now remember Joshua, he was the guy who led the Israelites uh, around the walls of Jericho, into the promised land, uh, led the people into battle to inherit the fertile land of Canaan. 
Judges, judges that has nothing to do with old guys in wigs, just by the way, um, they were heroic leaders, Gideon, Samson and so forth, raised up to rule God's people and rescue them from the invaders. Samuel, remember Samuel, we, we, we looked at 1 Samuel last couple of years, we want to go back to 1 Samuel again in, uh, later on next year. Samuel was a great prophet, probably the last of the judges type people, whose words from God governed the people and brought them blessing. And when Israel pleaded for a king, so they could be like the other nations, God patiently gave them Saul. Saul, the good-looking bloke, remember him? Uh, Then David, then Solomon. And their strengths together pointed to a future king like no other. This promised king would be greater than all these rulers combined. when, When we struggle to rule our own lives... Or when we suffer under the foolish leadership of others, we become more and more aware of our need for this promised king that's promised in the Old Testament. So when we pray your kingdom come, this is what we do. We ask our father to send this marvellous king who will lead us into our inheritance as Joshua did. Deliver us from our enemies as Samson did. Teach us God's word, as Samuel did. Be anointed with God's spirit, as Saul was. Be victorious and humble after God's own heart, like David. And be a wise governor who brings security and joy in God's presence, like Solomon. Sadly, though, Solomon got up to no good. Solomon was led astray by pagan wives and concubines. You're not sure what concubines are? Come and go and ask your mum later on. Um, <laughs> by God's judgment, the kingdom of Israel was torn in two. So we're at this little bit here, this sort of schism, torn in two. And uh, well, they were the people of Israel were placed into exile first by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and then later on by the Babylonians in, uh, in 586 BC in the south. The people were exiled. They were kicked out of their homes, literally kicked out of their homes and their land. The kingdom of God seemed to have collapsed. But the Lord sent prophets both to declare judgment but also to promise a spectacular new kingdom of a vast international resurrected people. They promised a great king, a prophet a priest, a judge, a shepherd, a son of man, a a suffering servant who would rule forever. And this king would be God himself, they promised. This fabulous kingdom which we pray in the Lord's Prayer will be breathtakingly wonderful. And so God urged these exiles to wait for God's kingdom. Wait. Now a small remnant of Israel returned to rebuild Jerusalem and in Ezra and Nehemiah, but God's people still longed for the glorious kingdom promised by the prophets. And then there was silence for 400 years. 400 years. Where on earth is God's spectacular kingdom? And where is this promised king? And nothing was said.
then the silence was broken. John the Baptist, like one of the prophets of old, dressed up in itchy camel's hair, snacking on locusts dipped in honey. He warned the people to repent in preparation for the arrival of the great king. And then at last, the long-awaited and momentous day dawned when a tradie from a nothing town announced in words of staggering significance, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The king had arrived. Jesus is God's king. Now, many expected this king to rescue Israel from the Romans, like a King David of old, you know. But Jesus promised a far greater deliverance, freedom from sin, Satan and death. And so in the synagogue in Nazareth, early on in his ministry, he declared and he quoted from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressor free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He then announced to his stunned audience that this promise had finally been fulfilled. He was that king promised in Isaiah 61. And they, with many others, were the captives that needed to be freed. Over the next three years or so, Jesus demonstrated the power of his rule in his teaching with authority, his power in his miracles to give new life and heal people, and finally in his death and resurrection. At his trial, he was tried and condemned for blasphemy and treason, claiming to be the divine king. In answer to the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus declared, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. What did the high priest do? He tore his clothes, tore his clothes. He was so angry because it was obvious to him what Jesus was declaring himself as. And so Jesus was lifted up in glory on the cross. John's gospel describes it. Under a sign, that red king. And he turned to the repentant criminal and he said, today you'll see me in my paradise kingdom. Three days later, he emerged from that bloody battlefield of the cross as a victorious conqueror of Satan, sin and death, providing rescue for his people. And now he's enthroned at the right hand of God. Our king continues to rule over his people through his word, interceding for us before our heavenly father. See, when we pray your kingdom come, we are asking our father to rule over us through Jesus. That's what we're praying. Our scarred saviour, our loving king, we are, we are welcoming his laws. We're trusting his power. We're celebrating his triumph and death. And we're expressing our deep longing to see him face to face in heaven. We pray, our Father, please send Jesus, your magnificent king. This is the same kingdom, the same gospel the apostles preached and wrote about. The same kingdom that John was given a glorious vision about in Revelation 21 and 22, like some travel brochure for Christians. This is where we're heading. This is what you're looking forward to. A new creation, a new Jerusalem, sin removed, a new garden. And those who have, quoting the words from Revelation, washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that's Jesus, can look forward to being comforted personally by God. Serving him and his people perfectly, seeing him clearly, reigning over the new creation where sin, death, crying, mourning or pain are no more. That's what we look forward to when we pray your kingdom come.
Your kingdom come means we long for the kingdom of the renewed creation promised in the Bible. Okay. That was my little sprint through. All right, did you keep up okay? I think most of you did pretty well, actually. Uh, let's apply this now. We've sort of applied it already a little bit, haven't we? But let's apply it a little bit more. I've got three ways I think we can apply this your kingdom come. Okay? One is we, we, we need to pray for evangelism. Evangelism means sharing the gospel with others. And two, when we pray your kingdom come, we're actually praying for the end. And we pray to come home. So let's think about those three things. Praying for evangelism. When we pray your kingdom come, we pray that because God's kingdom has not yet arrived fully. We're not sitting in heaven right now. However, when we become Christians, we surrender our lives to the king. We become citizens of the earthly kingdom. We submit ourselves to Jesus' rule. That's what we do when we become, become a Christian. When we pray your kingdom come, we're asking God to bring people into this kingdom. Bring King Jesus into their lives. That's what we're asking. And we're asking the gospel to spread throughout the world, for that's how the kingdom of God grows. It grows through God's word, the gospel going out and people responding to it in trust and faith, in obedience. We're asking God also to shape our lives to live by the values of the king and his coming kingdom. Now, one of the books I'm reading uh, that's helped me along this uh, as we pre uh, prepare for this series is uh, written by an English author. And so I say this because this is a little bit, well, it has a bit of a go at the English people. So let me, let me read this little illustration out to you. So he says, he, says, he writes, When citizens of the United Kingdom travel abroad, they commonly exhibit a passion for the special joys of British culture. The citizens of this earthly kingdom will go to bizarre lengths to find fish and chips, warm beer and bingo, <laughs> even in a tropical climate. <laughs> now, just before you, you know, have a go at the poor English, Aussies do the same thing. I don't know what we go for, but we try to do it as well. He goes on to say, citizens of the kingdom of God will hopefully display more attractive features of our heavenly culture. Friends, as we exhibit the values of heaven in our lives, we attract unbelievers to join us in trust and obedience to our heavenly king. All right, what about this next one? Praying for the end. When we pray your kingdom come, we are asking for the end of the world. We are asking for Jesus to return. For Jesus to return as king. And he promises to return in judgment. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? That's a sobering thought where it's, we're torn, we, are, we want him to return, but we also know that as he returns, he returns in judgment. Now, perhaps that's further motivation for us to share the gospel of the kingdom of God so that our friends and neighbours, like us, are ready for the king's return. Well, finally, when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying to come home. I wonder if you've seen on those, um, uh, you've seen on the Today Show, where, where they had this disadvantaged family receive a new home built for them by the TV network. Have you seen that sort of thing? I think there used to be a show on TV that, that just did this, but I can't remember the name of it. It might be called some sort of makeover show, you know? Anyway, these, these segments on the Today Show are, are, well, if you're anything like me, they're a bit, they're tear-jerking. 
You know, they're, they're, they're amazing. They're very inspiring. So this is how it works, you see, if you haven't seen them. Uh, the, the, the family, so they're disadvantaged in some sort of way. Maybe they've, been, they've struggled with some sort of illness or, or um, disability. Anyway, they're, they're sent off to have a holiday on the Gold Coast or whatever it might be for a week or two. And uh, while they're away, an enormous team of designers and builders led by some celebrity builder... You've seen, have anyone seen this sort of thing? Come on. All right, good. You're awake. Excellent. Great. Um, they, um, <laughs> what, what they, they get together and they rip the pl- old place down and they construct this fantastic new home specifically built to suit their needs. And the new home is schmick. Fantastic. You know, it's got everything they need uh, as a family that's disadvantaged, well, the family that's struggling a bit, right? Um, it's got the latest tech as well. It's got beautiful finishings. It is, uh, it's glorious in its comfort, right? No expenses spared. And when it's finished, all the neighbours and friends come together and welcome the family home. It's really quite cool. It's emotional, you know? It's, oh, yes, it's fantastic. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. But uh, I think they're really cool. I think it makes great TV. And it's really lovely, you see. And they get a guided tour of the house and there's people crying and there's there's hugging and all the rest of it. Um, Pointing out how this and that will help. It's good TV. One of the best things about it all is is that the local community get involved. So what you get, you get these uh, local tradies who offer their time and skills for free, builders and so on. And then sports teams come in to, to you know, do, the tra- do the digging and all the sort of the, the muscle stuff. Um, even the neighbours are encouraged to lend a hand in this transformation. It's pretty cool. Praying your kingdom come, I want to say, is a little like this, but on a much grander scale. So let me explain. See, Christians are invited by Jesus to get involved in God's transformation of the universe. God is creating a marvellous new home for his people. The designs were completed even before he made the world. The foundation cornerstone has already been laid in Christ crucified. The 12 foundations are named after the apostles of Jesus and the 12 gates are the tribes of Israel signifying the presence of the Old Old and New Testament believers. And as people come to Jesus each day through repentance and trust in him, they are added like living stones to the Father's house, built up by the word of grace. Jesus has gone back to heaven to finish preparing the place for us. And you and I are invited to contribute to the building of this new home in our evangelism, sharing the gospel, in serving each other, serving Christ. And one day, the Father will gather this vast new family into their new home for the Son's great wedding banquet, using Jesus' words. When we pray your kingdom come, we tell our heavenly dad how much we long to be home with him and all his family enjoying our new home. That's what we pray. We often feel dissatisfied and struggle with this world. Uh, Frustrated by that, frustrated with our own sin. Feeling, in fact, far from home like expats in a foreign land. But praying your kingdom come 
reminds us that our king is preparing a magnificently rebuilt home for us, the kingdom of God. How about I pray and give thanks to God for those things. Father, we pray that uh, we ask of you, Lord God, to, um, to teach us, remind us, to sit under your rule, King Jesus. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. But we also know, Lord God, that, that there are those who do not know you. And we pray today in our own hearts that we would submit to you, Lord Jesus, that we would admit where we've gone wrong, we'd believe in you, and we'd commit our lives to you, Lord Jesus, as King. Lord, we thank you that you are returning one day. We long for that day. And we thank you that we are citizens of your earthly kingdom today. In Jesus' name, amen.